I want to start by thanking everyone for your prayers and support towards our family. Give you a good report that mom and baby Emma are doing well. Um, every time, thank you. <laughs> I haven't done anything, but you know. Um, um, baby Emma, looking at her reminds me of 1 Peter 2.2, 2, where it says, like newborn baby, crave pure spiritual milk. And um, she's feeding every two, three hours. And if she's not fed, she will cry the loudest cry you've ever heard. And so, in, in like manner, we are to crave the Word of God. Um, it was about a year ago that Mike Costura and I went off to Kazakhstan. And after one week, um, Mike returned and replaced by Bob and to teach at the Almaty Strategic Bible Institute. Um, I remember the day Kastura left, and uh, I remember uh, closing the door behind him and thinking to myself, what am I doing here all by myself, halfway around the world in a country called Kazakhstan? I, I know one Russian word, uh, one like, Kazakh word, and I hope Bob comes, I hope Bob makes it. And it was also my birthday. Uh, at the time, and celebrating my birthday with, you know, strangers was an interesting experience. I felt kind of alone, really isolated in that apartment by myself. Well, uh, next day, uh, Bob arrived, and it was really good to see him, and he said he had a, a birthday present from, from my wife and Elizabeth uh, for me, and I didn't know what to expect. He opened his luggage, and he pulled out a picture that they had taken while I was gone of uh, Elizabeth hugging my wife in an 8 by 10 um, picture. He handed it to me. And you know, Bob's a wise man. He knew to leave the room right away. Because <laughs> wow, you know, just seeing that picture uh, reminded, just seeing my wife and baby daughter um, halfway around the world on my birthday it was just a great birthday present. And it struck me just the love that God has given me towards my wife and also towards my daughter, towards Elizabeth. And for all the parents out there, you understand what I'm talking about, that just deep love that God gives to parents towards their children. It is unexplainable. It is abiding. It is intense. It is a passionate love that God instills in all parents. Well, I remember in our study of John 3.16 a few years ago, being reminded of God the Father and His love for us and His love for me. And it struck me that it had been years since it really occurred to me that God loves me, that God cares for me. You know, I don't know about you, but for me, I, I function as a, as a Christian, as an elder, as a pastor, as a preacher. I function as a husband, as a father, as a man, you know, as a son, as a brother in Christ, as a friend. And being in that mode so often, I forget that when I'm in the presence of God, when I come before Christ, when I come before God, He is my Father and I'm His child. And He loves me. And He loves my soul. He cares for me. And He demonstrated His love for me once for all on the cross. I mean, can you identify with what I'm saying? I mean, when's the last time you just thought about 
the simple truth that God loves me. That when we read the Word, we're not just studying a book, but we're reading the words of God who loves us. When's the last time when you went to pray, you're on your knees crying out to God, and you thought about, you meditated upon, the forefront of your mind it was, I'm praying to God who loves me, who cares for me. Even evangelism, telling others about Christ. We're not arguing, we're not stirring up controversy, we're not just regurgitating things that we learned in evangelism training. No, we're telling others about God who loves them, who loves us. It is so improper for us to neglect the simple truth of God's love for us. It is improper. Because this is, maybe not for you, but I'm sure, if you're a believer, it is for you. This is what draw you to Christ in the first place, right? If you're a Christian, it wasn't some argument, it wasn't some evidences, it wasn't some irrefutable proof in the scriptures, unfulfilled prophecy that drew you to a knowledge of God. No, it was a simple, profound truth of God's love for you. That's what drew you, and that's what drew me to Christ in the first place. There is unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me, watching over me in love. J.I. Packer said, in knowing God, what matters supremely in my life is that God loves me. I am graven on the palms of His hands. I am never out of His mind. I know Him because He first loved me and He continues to love me. Another pastor said this. He said, God carries your picture in his wallet. In God's back pocket is a picture of you and I. It is unthinkable that Christians would neglect the central truth. It is a grand theme in the scriptures. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, The Lord did not set his affections on you and chose you. Because you were more numerous than others, you were not. The Lord set His affections on you because the Lord loves you. Because the Lord loved you. Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father has compassion, this intense, visceral love, as a father has this intense love towards his own children, in like way, Yahweh has compassion on those who fear Him. God is love. God loves you and God loves me. If there is ever a truth so grand that words are insufficient to describe it, it is this simple truth of God's love for us. It is impossible to fully fathom the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of the love of God. While in these mortal frames, many men have tried to articulate in words God's love for us. That great hymn by Samuel Trevor Francis, he he wrote, Oh, the deep, Deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the center and current of His love, leaning onward, leading homeward to that glorious rest above. Or that great hymn, The Love of God, the third stanza was found in a mental ward, in an insane asylum. It was an old Jewish poem and this patient, 
paraphrased it. He wrote it on the walls of his cell. One of the uh, nurses found it, wrote it down. And Pastor Francis Lehman read this poem that was written by a mental patient. And he used it and included it in his hymn, the third stanza. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches the lowest hell. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forever endure the saints and angels' song. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every blade of grass on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above the world would drain the ocean dry, not could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Many men have tried to articulate and communicate God's love for us. Well, many great passages, even in the Bible, have been written about God's love, arguably the greatest passage. The greatest description of God's love for man is found in John 3.16. Right? Right here. Apostle John, in his writing, he, you know, he uh, swung for the home run, you know. He swung to hit it out of the ballpark and he did. And, and penning John 3.16. For God so loved the world. There is a reason why it is the most familiar passage in all of the Bible. So much so that even non-Christians know it. So much so you can't go to a football game or a baseball game and not see some guy with a with a wig with a John 3.16 behind the goal or the home plate or something. Because it is, the truth that it contains is so great, it's so wonderful. Martin Luther said that this is the Bible and it's miniature. Here is the whole Bible summed up in these few verses. The context, that's why I asked Francis to read the whole, whole section. The context is our Lord's dialogue with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, remember the Sanhedrin, he is considered the teacher of Israel, and so he is mired as a Pharisee in laws, rules, and, and, and conditions, and covenants, and he's mired in requirements of the law, and, and striving after holiness, and external obedience, and religion. He doesn't understand, with his heart of stone, what it means to have a heart of flesh, and to be saved by Christ. And so in verse 14, Christ points to the Old Testament and how Moses lifted up the snake in the desert and how all the Jews who were bitten by a poisonous snake and if they wanted to be saved, there was only one hope, one way for them to be healed. It was not through any works. It was simply to look up and look at the bronze snake that was lifted up in the desert. And if they were to look at that snake, bronze snake, if they were to believe in God's provision of salvation, they will be healed. No works. Salvation by faith alone. In like manner, Christ says, Christ said, He Himself will be lifted up. And if anyone wants to be saved, if anyone wants to be healed of sin, have their sins forgiven, no work is required. All they need to do is look up. 
I look at Calvary. I look at Christ hanging on the cross. And if they will look upon him with faith, he or she will be saved. And that was just, you know, just a revolution occurred in Nicodemus' heart. I mean, it was a paradigm shift. It was just amazing what Christ had just taught him. And the question is why? Why would God give his son to such a horrible death? Why would God do this? And thus, Christ answers that question in verses 16 to 21. We find here five truths about the gift of God given to us in Jesus Christ. Five truths given to us about the gift of God given to us in Jesus Christ. Look at the first six words of verse 16 and we find there the first truth. The first truth of God's gift. The motivation behind God's gift. And for God so loved the world. The first word, for, tells us that that's the motivation behind God's gift because His love for us. Because He loved the world. God gave His Son Jesus Christ not to love the world. God gave His Son Jesus Christ because He loved the world. Note the third word, so. The Greek construction behind the three words, so love that, emphasizes the intensity of God's love. The love spoken here is that mighty compassion with which God regards the whole race of mankind. God's love for the world was so great, it was so intense, that He gave His only Son. Gave His only Son. Note that the word loved is in the past tense. The verse does not say God loves the world, present tense. Tells us that God's love to us is a past and proven fact. The greatest and singular demonstration of God's love given to us is found on the cross. We don't discern God's love for us based upon our experience, current experience. Oh, God loves me because I'm healthy. God loves me because He gave me a good job. God loves me because He gave me a great family or, or, or a car or possessions. Or God must not love me because I'm suffering in this way. Or I'm going through trial. Maybe God, God has forgotten about me. God's love for us is not gauged by our present circumstance. God's love for us has been proven and demonstrated once for all on the cross of Jesus Christ. We must never, and we can never question God's love. If we ever do, we must consider Calvary. Paul said in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His love for us. God, God demonstrated it. And that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. The motivation of God's gift is His love. Second truth is found in that description of Jesus Christ. His, that Jesus Christ is His one and only Son. The second truth points to the value of God's gift. First is motivation. Second is the value of God's gift. 
God give to us was His only begotten Son. I mean, when God gave us a son, what more could he have given? God gave us everything. He gave us himself. He gave us his only son. Consider here how much the fathers, all of you fathers, love your children, love your child. Could you give your child a sacrifice for your worst enemy? Could you do that? This one and only Son reminds us of the, of the story in the Old Testament in Genesis 22. And God called Abraham, the son whom you loved, to give him as a sacrifice in Mount Moriah. And Abraham, with his heart broken and torn apart, attempts to do so. And God, knowing the heart of the Father, stops him and will not allow him to do this. And says, no, you don't need to give up your own son. But for himself, he does not stop himself. He does not relent. He does indeed give his son, gave his son on our behalf. We must also consider how he gave his son. He did not give his son as some earthly fathers might to some profession. He did not give his son and to go off to missions, to go off to war, to go off to pursue some treasure or family. God gave His Son to die a cruel death reserved only for wicked criminals. God gave His Son to be cursed, to experience the wrath of God on the cross, on our behalf. This highlights the value of our salvation. You know, for, for us, we've said this many times, salvation is free, costs us nothing, simply faith. But there's the other side of this truth, that for God, it cost Him everything. See, it was free for us, but for God, it cost Him His one and only Son. So as we receive this salvation, we must be mindful that God's heart was broken and torn apart as He gave us this gift of salvation. Therefore, we are to value it as a priceless treasure. It dishonors God. It blasphemes His name. It denigrates the value of this gift when so many Christians, professing Christians, so easily walk away from the faith. They have such a low esteem for the gift of salvation. Low esteem for obedience to Christ. For them it is cheap grace. and That's all it is. Because they do not realize that God gave this gift with tears and it cost Him everything. The value of God's gift. Well, let's go to the third truth. The object of God's gift. The recipient of of God's gift. It says, For God so loved the world, the world of mankind. The idea that God loves the world is a new idea. It is. It is a radical departure from the common understanding of Jews at that time. The Jews believed that God loved Israel. God loved the Jewish people. 
God loved those who are proselytes, have agreed to come under the Jewish religion. And apart from Judaism, God has nothing but utter hatred for the world. Jews were shocked. Nicodemus was shocked. And even today, many are shocked by this simple truth. Love of God for the whole world is a breathtaking truth. Especially when we consider the world alone. The black background of sin that is in the world makes the bright line of love shine out most clearly. Because what was there in the world for God to love the world? Was there anything lovable? Was there anything valuable? Inherent in this world that God should love it? If there was, then to that degree it cheapens God's love. But God's love is heightened because the Bible is clear. There is nothing in this world worthy of God's love, deserving of God's love. Joseph Eileen, Puritan pastor, said that there is nothing in the world that turns God's heart. You know, I've said this many times. And we look at, you know, our children sons and daughters and, and they act cute, you know, they say something funny or they smile and unless you're just, you know, you know, I don't know what you are, but if you're a normal human being, I mean, your heart just turns and melts within you and you can't help but be moved by just the beauty and the loveliness of a young child. And sometimes we think God sees us in that way. God looks at us and we're just so beautiful in His sight. We're so precious and so adorable that God's heart just turns and melts at the sight of James Shin, you know. But that's not the truth. Right? There's nothing in, in man that turns God's heart. But there's enough in man that turns God's stomach. When God sees us, He's so disgusted he is so repulsed. He wants to vomit. He wants to throw up. He has a holy revulsion at our utter depravity, at our wickedness. Because only thing growing in the field of the world is sin. is hatred towards God. Disregard of His law. Rebellion against His com- commandments. When he looks at the world, there is a wasteland. No desirable thing blossomed here. And yet, in spite of our evil and rebellion, in spite of the fact that there is nothing lovable in this world, what is God's response? What is God's heart? God loves the world. God loved the world. Consider that we were sinners against the very person who died for us. He died for His enemies, the very ones who hated and scorned Him. Remember after Christ's resurrection, He said to His disciples, Begin at Jerusalem. Proclaim the gospel of reconciliation at Jerusalem. You know what I would have said? I would have said, skip Jerusalem. Right? Forget these people. Anywhere but Jerusalem. Because these are the people that said, crucify me. 
These are the people who betrayed me. These are the ones who scoffed, mocked, and laughed at me on the cross. So when you preach the gospel, preach everywhere but this city. Don't tell them about God's love in this city. That's what you would have done. That's what I would have done. But what did Christ do? He said, begin here with those who tortured, mocked, scoffed, spat, and crucified me. Here we see the object of God's love. Where did this love come from? It comes from God. Because He is a God of love. That's who He is. Fourth truth is found in the second part of verse 16 and verse 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. Why perish? Why would you die in your sins? The purpose of God's love and God's gift is that men might be saved, that they might have eternal life because the first incarnation, first sending of the Son, God did not send Him to judge the world. That is in His second coming. But His first coming was for the purpose that the world should be saved through Him. The primary purpose of our Lord's first coming was to demonstrate God's love towards lost sinners, to provide a way of salvation that sinners might be saved. It tells us that God is willing to save sinners. No matter how great a man's sinfulness, no matter his evil, depravity, no matter the depth of his rebellion against God, God's arms are wide open to receive any repentant sinner. It's sad to say that most do not receive this gift. This week I was witnessing to a guy after playing ball and I told my wife, I'll be back in one hour. Elizabeth and Emma's home. So after one hour, I started witnessing to him. I've got to work out first, right? So, and so I'm talking to this guy, and I'm like, it's been an hour now. For two hours, and I know Surin's home with two children. I should go home. But it seemed like this guy is so close. After I tell him everything, I mean, I tell him the whole gospel, his response, he rejects it. He doesn't want it. He hates Christ. He hates God. He hates God that would have only way of salvation. That would be holy. That is righteous. And the cross of Christ does not move in one bit. And you know, that's the response of most people in this world. Rejection of God's gift. That's the fifth and final truth in this passage. To believers, it is unfathomable why anyone would reject this gift. But that is a reality. And that, and God's gift reveals the heart of man. Reveals the heart of man. Many see in this passage only the bright side of love. But this passage has a darker side that is perhaps more threatening to the unbeliever. The darker side of this passage reveals 
what the gift of God reveals about man. It, it, it exposes the depth of man's wickedness. That he will look at this great gift, this beautiful, lovely, holy gift that God has given to man, and he would reject it. It does not lower God's gift at all, but what it does do, it lowers, it convicts, it condemns man in his sin. Let me give you an example. Let's say you know, we were to go to Europe, go to Paris or Italy, and you would go to these great museums and see great artistic masterpieces on display. No, and these works are not there to defend themselves. These works are beautiful. They are masterpieces. But the works reveal not the character of the art itself, but the work reveals the character of the viewers by their reaction, by their response. When someone sees a painting by Rembrandt, Monet, or or a sculpture by Michelangelo, and he says, ah, it's junk. Man, that's no good. Man, I can do better than that. You know? Tells us nothing about these works of art, but it tells us much about that person. It tells us, man, you're a fool. It tells us, you know nothing about art. It tells us, you have very bad taste tells us nothing about these works of art. Likewise, when someone comes to Christ and he says, I reject it. Not a big thing. I don't see anything valuable here. You know, sin is better. My life in this world, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, you know, living for this world, money, my friends, boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, sin is better than Christ. It tells us nothing about Christ, but it tells us everything about what is in that person's heart. That's what it reveals. He passes judgment not upon Christ, but upon himself. And it says here in John 3, that he does not have to wait until the day of judgment to find out what the verdict is. You, know, you don't have to wait till that day to see, am I guilty or not? The Bible says he is already condemned because of his rejection of Christ. There will indeed be a final day of judgment, but that day will only serve to confirm the judgment that has already been pronounced. If any man will not come to Christ, the fault is entirely on his side. Look at verse 18, the word already. Condemnation is not left to some remote future where he might be found guilty. No, John makes it absolutely clear that condemnation has already taken place if a man rejects Christ. No need to wait to see what will happen. Anyone who has rejected Christ. Once for all, he or she is already condemned by the Lord. Furthermore, in verses 19 through 21, John gives us the real reason why men reject Christ. It is not because of lack of evidence. It is not because of lack of intellectual honesty. It is not due to philosophical reasons. It is not due to other religions. It is simply due to sin. Because they love sin more. 
Light reveals the unrighteousness of man, exposes their sin, and wicked men reject the light because their deeds are evil. They love sin more than Christ. Simply that. That is it. It's a moral issue. Christians, though we sin, though I sin, I say, what a wretched man I am. And I say, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, I denied you three times. Another girl came to me, I probably would have denied you four times, five times. But Lord, you know that I love you. You know I love you more than sin, even though I'm a sinner. That's the confession of true Christians. But a non-Christian, in his own heart, in the secret places, would whisper to themselves, I love sin more. I love sin more. A few closing thoughts. First response, appropriate response for us, is to love Jesus Christ. Love Jesus Christ. And my job as a pastor is not for you to have better thoughts of yourself. That's what the world says. You want to be a popular, successful pastor? Tell people that they are good. Help them like and love themselves. And they will love you. The Bible tells us that my job is to help you think of yourself meanly. That's my job. That every time we have this time of discourse and, and for me to teach you, my job is to shepherd your hearts so that you will hate yourself more after the sermon than before the sermon. Where your response to your heart is, I do not love Christ as I should. I do not love Christ as I ought. I should love Him more. I love sin too much. I don't pray as I ought. I don't obey as I ought. I don't cherish Christ as I ought. What a wretched man I am. See, blessed are those who mourn, present tense. If your Christian life is, wow, I mourned five years ago and I'm a Christian now. That morning is done with. You know, that poor in spirit, it's over. You're not blessed. Blessed are those present tense who mourn because they do not love Christ. For a moment, weigh those words, Christ died for us. You know, when the World Trade Centers were on fire, scores of police officers and firefighters entered the burning building. I mean, that's amazing. That's your job. Everybody's running away from the burning buildings. Your job is to run into these burning buildings to rescue those who are trapped inside. Many of them lost their lives. They died saving others. Do we not love these brave men and women? Do we not? I read in the book Flags of Our Fathers by James Bradley, Required Reading for All Men, account of the battle for Iwo Jima, tells of a story of a young man, 21 years old, he's a well-respected sergeant of his company. When a grenade was thrown at them, he covered the grenade of an enemy with his body. He threw his body, saving the lives of his friends. Did these friends not owe him at least some amount of love towards him because he saved their lives? Well, how much more ought we love Christ? How much more ought we 
adore Him, cherish Him, and praise His name. We have seen the power of death. We have seen how, how death causes strong men to bow down, causes strong man's knees to quiver. We have seen or at least heard of the marked torture and agonies which come upon men in their dying hours. We declare, therefore, that it is a solemn and it is an awful thing to die. We need to listen that Christ experienced this for us. Christ died for us. We, we are to love Christ above all. What does it mean to love Christ? It is not an emotional response. Not some kind of external experience. What does it mean to truly love Christ? It is a simple word called obedience. Obedience. Do you want to see how much you love Christ? Just look at your life. Look at your obedience. John 14:21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. He is the one who loves me. Are you obeying Christ today? Are you loving Christ today? To love Christ means to obey Him. If you're not obeying Christ, it simply means you're not loving Him. Second response is for us to love one another. Love one another. First John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So if, we, if people say, I want to die for Christ. Well, the Bible says if you want to die for Christ, it means you want to die for one another, for fellow Christians. No, I don't want to die for Christians. I don't want to die for the church. No, that's just church. I'll die for Christ. Well, Christ died for the church. And Christ has followed me. And therefore, that means we are to die for the church, die for Christians, lay down our lives for one another. That's why... First John says, whoever does not love his brother does not know God. If any man says, I love God, but hate his brother in Christ, he is deceived. For anyone who does not love his fellow Christian cannot love God. Cannot. Second response of the gospel must be that we love one another. What does that mean? It means, let me get practical, it means talking to one another. Right? How's that? How about we love one another by talking to one another, by relating to one another, by indiscriminately loving one another. The world loves according to their categories. You know, if you're like me and you have similar hobbies, similar interests, similar life category, I'll develop a relationship with you. But as Christians, we develop relationships indiscriminately if you are a believer, if you're a part of the spiritual family. You don't say, oh, you know, uh, you're a mom or you're a dad. You, know, you have two kids, I only have one. You know, you're engaged, so only engaged people talk to them. Sorry, Pat and Alice, you guys are the only ones, you know. Or you're dating, or you're single, or you're in college, or you're in junior high, you know. I'm in high school, right? So we don't talk to one another. I right? know. 
there is a unity that God has given us positionally, but practically, for that unity to be fostered, it takes our effort. And there's a, 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 a misunderstanding that yes, positionally we're united, but that's only positionally in heaven. Practically, we are divided. For us to have that positional unity requires effort on our part to proactively love, serve, and care for one another through purposeful fellowship. Love one another. And finally, for us to declare this message to the world, there is no hesitancy on God's part to save the lost. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 33:11 As surely as I live declares the sovereign Lord I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that they turn from their ways and live turn turn from your evil ways why will you die 2 Peter 3:9 The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance First Timothy two four, God wants all men to be saved, and come to a knowledge of the truth. Because God loves the world, we must increase our capacity, loving God, loving fellow Christians. We must make room in our hearts for those who are living in sin for those whose lifestyles might be repulsive to us, might bother us, might make us uncomfortable. But God loves them. God desires them to be saved. Therefore, our approach to them must be one of love, proclaiming God's truth in a gracious manner that they might be saved. Let us take this week out to meditate upon God's love for us, so that we might love Him more, love one another more, and in a greater way love this world. God, we do thank You and praise You Our hearts are laid low because of your love for us. Because as our eyes are open to the truth, we realize how utterly undeserving we are of the grace that was given to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, how can you pray for us that we will be forgiven because we don't know what we're doing? Lord, how could you save us and forgive us of the deep stain of our sins? Lord, our hearts are deeply moved by the simple truth of your love for us and the gift that was given because of your love for us. May it cause us to respond in a sober and a righteous manner. May may we respond in intense affections for Christ. May it move our souls. May it shake the foundations of our lives and cause us to reevaluate what we live for, who we live for. May He cause us to reevaluate how we live. 
means still in us a deep, intense, vigorous, strong love and affection for you. A love that constrains us to, to want to cherish you more, to prize you more. A love that constrains us to, to pray more, to evangelize more, to study the Bible more. A love that causes us to hate sin in our lives. A love that causes in us a great desire to be holy and pure in your sight. Lord, may John 3.16 your truth that is stored deep in our hearts, causing us to live rightly. In Jesus' name.